shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, this is it. Happy EMS Week, everyone. I got to tell you, we did this last year, and EMS Week was always fun. And uh, I'm sure Kelly is going to give us his uh, philosophy of EMS Week. So with no further ado, let's go ahead and bring him in here. And Kelly Grayson, happy EMS Week to you. Happy EMS Week to you too, brother. So um, I do subscribe to your philosophy of EMS Week. So Mm -hmm. I think the first thing that we should do is just talk about it and give everybody what you think. Yep. You know, I've, I've said for years that we do EMS Week totally backwards. What we do is, is we spend one week, the third, uh, the third week of May every year, um, being visible and vocal and advocating for our profession, uh, and posing for, for photo ops with our elected leaders and doing blood pressure checks and all that kind of stuff. And then the other 51 weeks of the year, uh, we let the public forget about us and, and take us for granted. I think we do it absolutely wrong. I think we need to be advocating and pushing and needling and and pressuring people uh especially our elected leaders and the citizens we serve to uh to address the needs of emergency medical services and then we take the third week in may off preferably someplace warm with a beach drinks with umbrellas in them all that sort of stuff so yeah i mean when when you talked about this last year you know i I kind of when you started it it was kind of a little bit of a, a you know a joke for me and then as you started to talk about it, I mean, think about the, the importance of what we can get done if we advocate for our career field 51 weeks out of the year. I mean, we talk about, you know, Kelly, people people don't know what we do, and people call us ambulance drivers, and people don't understand the, you know, the, the complexities of our career field. And, you know, if we think about education, if we think about building community, if we talk about uh, developing stakeholders... That really is a job that should take us all year to do. And, uh, you know, maybe when the third week in May comes around, we kick back and we light up the barbecues and we really just support the people that are uh, that need to be recognized mm-hmm. for, the, for the, you know, the selfless, you know, for the, the heroism, for the work that they do that uh, really needs to be recognized. And uh, I can't agree with you more. Yeah, I think if if every EMT in the country actually sat down, decided what was important to him as a provider, uh, that he could change at his agency, one little thing to affect change at, at, at your agency, no matter how small it is, if every EMT set out to do that and spent one week doing it, we would change the face of EMS, period. It would look at like an entirely different profession within a year. I but, agree question is is how do we get people motivated to do that well i think we're going to talk about that and uh you know i think one of the things that i have as my news story is uh you know going to relate around ems week but as with our tradition you get to kick off our news this week first story comes out of falls church virginia uh the ems compass project has released a new set of uh proposed uh performance measures ems performance measures uh for public comment uh, the first set was uh, was uh, open for public comment between April 15th and May the 6th, and they, they uh, uh, sought our input on stroke, seizure, and hypoglycemia measures and, and, and best practices. And the latest one, uh, open until June the 3rd, is STEMI and sudden cardiac arrest measures. So 
we would encourage everyone uh, at every EMS agency to call or to write the uh, the EMS Compass Project, and we'll provide the link in the show notes. Um, but, you know, Chris, we've talked about this before. One of the problems in our profession is the lack of a defined standard as to what actually constitutes good care, excellent care. What We don't have many benchmarks in EMS for, for what we try to do. And the few benchmarks that we do have are, are often arbitrary and, and outdated, like response time standards, uh, for example. Um, and this is a chance for EMS providers uh, and leaders uh, at their agencies to, to get their voices in and actually come up with some realistic EMS-generated performance measures uh, for you know the nation. Yeah, and I think that what what's really important here is that when you think about the scope of this project, how is it that you develop standards for a hospital-based system, for a third city service, for privates, for you know, um, you know, the mom and pops, and and you know, rural, and and I mean, we could just go on and on and talk about you know the difference, uh, you know, the different types of agencies that we have in our career field. But when you think about the importance of being able to monitor and being able to report and being able to finally put your hands on what it is that we do and how we're going to be able to, to share that information, I think that's what finally brings our career field the credibility that it needs. Because think about it. People don't know what we do. And the reason that people don't know what we do is everybody's doing a different thing. And we've got to be able now to, to look at this and to, to have a set standard that everybody can report on, that we know that as a career field, time to first shock is X or, you know, whatever these, you know, whatever these metrics are going to be. And, and uh, you know, the, the undertaking of this is huge. Now, parallel to this, the, uh, the National Community Paramedicine uh, folks have a, have a committee together and they're trying to develop standards from the very beginning that talks about what are we going to measure, uh, what are we going to measure within our community paramedic career field, and I think that these two initiatives are going to mm-hmm. finally be able to give our career field the the credibility, the recognition, and really, you know, an overall understanding of what it is that we do for our uh, for the patients that we serve. Yeah, you know, and, and that is that is why this public comment process is so crucial, because you mentioned it yourself, there is such diversity in system models, demographics, population density, so on and so forth, that, that what may be appropriate for a stroke patient uh, in an urban center with a, a hospital at each compass point no more than a few miles away may not be appropriate or, or feasible in rural Iowa. So, to make sure that uh, the measures are appropriate for for the vast majority of services, no matter how diverse they are, that's where this public comment uh, system comes into play. You know, I've said many, many times that the problem with with having low standards and setting your goals low is you tend to you tend to uh, hit what you aimed at. Um, and if you don't challenge yourself and, and try to better your system in any way, you wind up having with the same old system. And, and that's how EMS systems wind up still practicing 1990s medicine in, in, in here in 2016. Uh, they've never tried to get better, uh, never been challenged to get better. Set the bar a little higher, and, and maybe some of those agencies that lag behind can, can step up a little bit. Uh, when we see the ones that already meet those standards, then, then those are system models to emulate, and you don't have to go reinvent the wheel. 
and hopefully, you know, those people, they're, they're doing some great work. And, and this is an undertaking for the whole career. I'm going to be excited to see what's going to come out of this, as will, you know, a lot of the people in EMS. So my story goes to, since we're talking about EMS Week, Kelly, my story goes to an initiative. And uh, this came out on the 16th. It's the White House's petition to rename EMS Week. And there's a paramedic, and he explains why he launched a White House petition to rename the annual recognition event to EMS Prevention Week. And uh, Sean Hannon uh, is petitioning the White House to change the name. And, and when I read this, I, I was really, um, really kind of taken aback by that to think about why we would want to um, change the name of EMS Week to EMS Prevention Week. And, you know, in this interview with uh, Sean, he talks about that the general public has limited an understanding and the meaning of the purpose of EMS Week. And I think that over the years, we as EMS professionals overlook the purpose of EMS Week as well. And I got to tell you, I don't know that I agree with this initiative. And I think that EMS Week isn't for the people that we serve. EMS Week is for the people who are doing the serving. We go through so exactly. much. We go through so much within our career field. You know, it's a thankless job. It's a it's a meal missing job. It's a holiday missing job. It's a you know, it's a a, a position that uh, you may not go home at the end of the day. It's it's a, a you know something that could take you away from your family. And I think the one week out of the year, until we move to the Kelly Grayson model, the one <laughs> week out of the year that we have the opportunity to point focus to our career field, we really need to make the focus our career field. And I agree with you, uh, you know, 100% when you say 51 weeks out of the year, we should be advocating for our career field, we should be teaching our community, we should be educating our community, we should be, uh, you know, doing blood pressure checks and, and glucose checks outside the Walmart once a month or whatever it is that we need to do. That's where the recognition of EMS comes from. But to change the, 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 the meaning of EMS week to EMS prevention week, we are not going to prevent the use of EMS. We are not going to educate uh, our, our uh, communities one week out of the year. And I think that, uh, you know, it's great that there's motivation to think about this name change, but I don't know that I can subscribe to it. Well, yeah, I, I tend to agree. I, I applaud Sean and his efforts to include and promote injury prevention as, as one of the core components of emergency medical services. Um, and, you know, great for him him advocating for that. I just don't think that injury prevention uh, should be the, the focus of this particular week. <clears throat> As I recall, there is a safety and injury prevention week that is separate from EMS week. I've written several, you know, humorous articles for EMS One uh, on that subject, uh, safety, uh, safety and wellness week or something like that. Um, I agree that we that injury prevention needs to be the thrust of, of much of our efforts in the public health realm, um, but I think the EMS week is something we should solely focus on on the uh, the life saving aspects of providing emergency care, not the proactive stuff, but you know educating the public on what we do when it's appropriate. Uh, um, what kind of funding and resources we need and the challenges faced by EMS. Uh, and we can still do that, you know, injury prevention stuff. That's that's one of the things we can do the other 51 weeks of the year. Let's uh, let's move to Kentucky, where a 
Kentucky Ambulance Service in Breathitt County, Kentucky, uh, has been charged with defrauding the government by billing for transports that weren't medically necessary. But the twist in this is that the whistleblower is a competitor ambulance service. So I'm going to automatically take this with a grain of salt um, and and not cast aspersions at the... uh, at uh, Aero Medic Ambulance Service, who is accused of doing this, uh, Aero Med Ambulance, and uh, its owner Herschel J. Arrowwood, uh, they said that they they've billed for unnecessary runs uh, as far back as 2012, uh, maybe more than a million dollars in overpayments involved, and that the company pressured paramedics and EMTs to exaggerate patients' medical conditions and paperwork uh, to justify stretcher necessity. Um, and in one case, uh, they were they alleged that an ambulance crew was taking a person to dialysis treating, treatments and letting them ride up front with the driver. Uh, and if that is true, yeah, that's a big no-no. Um, if you if the patient can ride up front with the driver, then he is by definition not stretcher bound, and an ambulance is not necessary. So if this is true, uh, this does not spell good things for Aeromed Ambulance. Um, we'll we'll just have to see how that. that works out in the courts. But I got to say, it's not an unusual thing, man. I mean, you and I have have been approached by listeners uh, about this very thing uh, where their agencies were pressuring them to do the exact same thing that this ambulance service is accused of doing, uh, falsifying and fudging their PCRs to reflect stretcher necessity when the patient didn't actually meet the criteria. So uh, while it... It has yet to be proven true. It is certainly plausible. Yeah, and I think that, you know, if I'm not mistaken, you just brought this up either on last week's show or the week before that, that, uh, you know, this is the practice. And I got to tell you, when, you know, when you first brought this up on the show, it was one of those things where I had to question it to say, I don't know that this is really happening. And then uh, the flood of emails came in from our listeners to say, oh, in fact, it's happening. And now that we hear that, uh, you know, there is an EMS agency that could be in Dutch because of that, I think that, um, you know, that's going to be a very interesting outcome to kind of keep an eye on. But so uh, let's go ahead and go to my story. It's going to come out of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Kelly. And I really want to get your opinion about it because uh, I don't really know how I feel. And as I, I pulled this story aside to talk about today, um, but the headline is... Uh, Pennsylvania bill may allow paramedics to assist police in DUI cases. Under the bill, paramedics would be able to draw blood at DUI crash scenes when a police officer is present. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if this is really what our responsibility is as, as a career field. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I'm leaning on the, on the side of this story giving me a little bit of heartburn, but I'd be interested to know what you think. I think it's a very bad idea. While on the on the face of it, the the legislators proposing this uh, House Bill twenty fifty eight before the Pennsylvania legislature, um, I don't think it's a good idea. First of all, our job is not evidence collection; shouldn't be. Maybe when in the course of of our treatment of the patient, we need to be cognizant of evidence preservation. Um, but there are certain things that we don't need to to be doing. Uh, on the scene of an emergency. Uh, and one of these is drawing blood for law enforcement. Let that happen at the hospital. Uh, train, for goodness sakes, it, it doesn't take all that much to teach a phlebotomy course. Teach a, teach a few troopers um, how to draw blood 
and do so uh, uh, using their, their blood evidence collection kits and be done with it. Uh, don't get EMS involved. That is, that's not something that's, that should be in our wheelhouse as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, one of the things that I think that I thought of initially when I saw that is one of the things that we say all the time to our patients and maybe in those sticky situations, Kelly, is, hey, we're not the, we're not the cops. Exactly. We're, we're the good. We're we're not the bad guys, or we're not adversarial. Not to paint the cops as bad guys, but we want to. We don't want to to uh, blur that line. Yeah, because I think that what one of the things that that does is you know that that automatically puts us in a position of we we lose the you know ability to say I'm here for you. We lose the ability to say we're not combatants because now all of a sudden we're now seen uh, with our police brethren as uh, an extension of them. So now does this open us up to more abuse? Does this open us up to more uh, assaults? And, um, you know, this there's been a couple of times where some EMS agencies have, have made this push and, and may have even moved to it. And if you're an EMS agency that's out there that you do this service for your uh, police, uh, for your police force, please get in touch with us because I think we'd really like to bring you on and kind of talk about, you know, the transition and talk about the practice and, you know, because just think about the chain of custody now. So after mm-hmm. you draw this blood, uh, you know, you've got to be able to document it the right way. You've got to be able to make sure the time is on it. You've got to make sure that your initials are on it. And then what are you doing it? Are you handing it over to the police officer? Um, so, I mean, I think that there's a lot of questions here, but initially, Kelly, uh, I don't know that I can get behind this bill. Imagine, imagine how many times we'll be called to testify in court, uh, on DUI cases. If we add, if we add that capability or, or make that a, a, uh, a job task for paramedics on emergency scenes, you know, I've, I've drawn blood, uh, quite a few times for, for state troopers and, and law enforcement from fatalities. (laughs) <laughs> we get there and they say, hey, man, can you, uh, you know, can you draw blood from this body uh, so we can we can test it for uh, alcohol and, and intoxicants? And I've done that. But there's no longer a patient confidentiality issue there. Um, and, and it's going to make it very hard for us to say. And I know you've said this, as have I, as have most uh, EMS professionals, you know, hey, man, you can talk to me. I, I, I'm not the cops, <laughs> you know. How are we going to gain trust and patient rapport uh, if we're seen as the people that are helping gather evidence for their prosecution? You know, I just uh, I don't buy it. And I I think that's something that uh, uh, we don't need to be delving into. Yeah, as we were talking about this, Kelly, I I was just driving from Fort Worth, Texas to St. Louis, Missouri, and um, there was somewhere in, in my trip, so it had to have been either Missouri uh, or Oklahoma or Texas, where a sign said, if you refuse a breathalyzer test, um, it's an automatic uh, admission of guilt. And I don't know that I believe in that either, but I think that if you're being asked to, to take a breathalyzer test because you're, uh, there's an assumption that you may have broken the law, because then they have the right, the, the police officers then have the right to uh, you know, have you submit for those tests, um, you know, you're going to be treated like you were driving under the influence. If you've got nothing to hide and you're suspected, um, but maybe that's taking the constitutional end of it a little bit too far, but I'd rather see something like that. But, um, yeah, 
but well, you know, Louisiana has similar laws. Uh, I, I don't know if you're automatically considered guilty, but you do if you refuse a breathalyzer or a blood test. You do revoke your. You do uh, are subject to revocation of your license automatically for at least six months. Um, so. You know, that's one of those things. Uh, it's part of your driving privileges, not rights, privileges. And uh, if you don't submit to the things necessary to uh, retain those privileges, they can be taken away. Well, I've got a story for you out of Beaver County, Pennsylvania. And I think this is this is uh, has the potential to be pretty useful tool in the EMS toolbox. There's uh, a woman uh, has created a program to help EMTs with autistic patients. This comes from May the 15th out of Beaver County, Pennsylvania. And Kimberly Stanford is a mental health professional and the mother of a son with Asperger's syndrome. And she uh, developed this program to help EMTs understand, uh, identify, and and calm down a patient with autism. And I don't know about you, man, but that is something that I was a glaring, gaping hole in my EMS education. And, and I hadn't even heard of autism for the first 10 years of my career. Um, you know, it, it seems like it's something that's only really becoming coming to uh, public awareness in a big way in the last 10 years. And I'm I'm pretty good at calming down autistic kids. Uh, first, because I'm uh, you know I'm good at establishing patient rapport, and I don't push things. Uh, but the other thing is 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 when when kids don't react like you would expect them to, like an autistic child does not react, uh, does not interact with their environment in any uh, in what you consider a normal way, it kind of takes away all your ability to, to calm them down. And, and uh, all too many uh, EMTs and people, you know, uh, resort to the, the papoose board and the, and the, the force uh, kind of thing, which even makes it worse. So I think this will be a, be a pretty good deal uh, if, we, uh, if it becomes widespread, um, something that uh, will – uh, or it's it's training that uh, many EMS systems will find very useful. I wonder if we can find a way to get this woman on and, and talk to her about it. You know, because one of the things that I think has been a real challenge is when we, you know, and, and pediatric calls are challenging enough. Now, oh, yeah. We don't have to add a patient that has autism, um, you know, to, to, to make this more difficult for us. And one of the things that you really need to know, and one of the things that I've learned in, in my experience as a paramedic, is that uh, the plan that you need to have when dealing with a patient with Asperger's is to not have a plan at all. Because That's right, because it, it, it was it, the saying, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Yeah, I don't know what that was. I mean, that, that's not very, but anyway, um, but it's still <laughs> the point of that nothing that you've experienced before is no. going to prepare you for this next call. Secondarily, the next autistic child that you run, the experience that you have isn't going to prepare you for that next call. And you've got to be able to address these situations as individual. You've got to be uh, able to now put the care uh, or, or allow the patient almost to dictate your treatment uh, and management uh, uh, modalities. And this is something that I think is very, very uh, important to our career field. As you mentioned it, when we think about the training for this, where are we getting trained for this? And the answer is we're not. And uh, i really like to be able to find a way to uh, reach out to the Beaver County Times in Beaver County, Pennsylvania, 
and see if we can find uh, you know this uh, you Kimberly Stanford, yeah, yeah, and uh, kind of get her on the show and kind of talk to her about it. Maybe we'll try to do a little bit of a uh, uh, research to get that happening. But I got to yeah. tell you, man, hats off! What a great way. Yeah, huh? yeah, I really applaud Kim Stanford for for doing this. And she, you know, in as part of the training, there is a uh, there is a sensory kit that she has put together to help kids deal with the with the sensory issues and the and the stimulation that they require and crave or the stimulation that they don't like uh what many people find find hard to understand about uh autistic patients is is uh the world as we see it is uh, is totally different from the for them it's a very scary place. Just imagine yourself in a hall of mirrors, uh, except every mirror is blasting this the Peter Gabriel sledgehammer video at full blast, uh, and you can't get away from it. So one of these thing, uh, one of the the uh, protective mechanisms these kids engage in is stimming, uh, self stimulation. They may rock uh, in the 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 stereotypical. Uh, autistic behavior. They may they may uh, use echolalia, the same words over and over. They may flap their hands or whatever. But the the sense is is that that is the stimulus they control, uh, and they can't control the stimulus they get from the rest of their environment. So they just they try to block out everything else uh, for the stimulus that they can control, and that's comforting for them. You know, so these stimular these I'm sorry these sensory kits with the weighted bags and the, the things that you on and the earmuffs and everything uh, probably will go a long way toward making a very scary ambulance ride something that's at least tolerable uh, for these kids with these challenges. So, you know, it's funny, Kelly, as you were talking about that, well, I didn't mean to cut you off, and I, I'm, no I'm sorry to get you in the mid, but, you know, it was funny that when you were describing this, the thing that I was thinking was, this is really kind of how you handle yourself on the show. So. <laughs> That was really, I mean, it made sense to me now. Now I don't take it all very personally. Now I haven't understand. No, I'm just teasing you, but No, I'm, I, I am no, in nowhere near as, uh, yeah, yeah, as yeah. challenged as some of these four kids. I've got it easy. So. And I gotta tell you, all I have though. to do is deal with Sebolero, which is a handicap in and of itself. It is, it is. But and, is uh, nowhere near as challenging as dealing with autism. And I gotta tell you, man, one of the things <laughs> that I think is really interesting is that my nephew's boy is, has Asperger's syndrome. Mm-hmm. And he has a very, very mild form, not very pronounced. And uh, but the the abilities that this kid has when it comes to drawing, and the ability this kid has when he when it comes to the you know the the knowing every single line in a movie beat when he watches it, even though that there may be some challenges when it comes to as you mentioned the, the you know the stimuli that they're getting uh, that they can't control in other areas. I mean. These people have some brilliance that we can learn a lot from uh, any normal day. The savant aspect of, of autism is, is actually a very rare thing, but they are capable. Uh, the, the fact that they do exist and are capable of such uh, wondrous you know, feats of intellect and math and, and artistry with, with music and whatnot uh, is an amazing thing. Just goes to show that they're, they're you know, it's not a. Uh, how would I how would I put this? It just goes to show that you know there's something going on uh, in these kids, and they're not 
utterly broken. Uh, right. They're 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 still capable of, of wondrous things. Uh, they just have severe challenges to deal with. Uh, yeah. And the the more sensitive we are uh, at recognizing those challenges and understanding how to deal with them, then we can make uh, the occasional EMS trip a, a far less scary thing. And I'm all for it. So let's let's get Kim Stanford on the uh, on the show as quick as we can, and we'll talk more about this. Yeah, I'm going to give it a go, but I just want to do a one quick one before I give it to you. Yeah, let's do it. So what the heck is going on down there in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where you guys feel necessary that you got to run over alligators? <laughs> now, where's, well, first of all, I didn't see that news story, but let me tell you something, man. Uh, alligators in, in South Louisiana as roadkill is not an unusual thing. I have, I personally have run over alligators on the road. Uh, they come out, and uh, especially at night, and they like to sun themselves on the asphalt a little bit. You know, they're they're cold-blooded creatures, and, and uh, it's a nice, warm, warm spot to bask in, and and. Uh, uh, asphalt holds heat for a while, so if you drive, especially around uh, the the marshes in Cameron Parish, uh, uh, you will see roadkill alligator. Uh, just you just pray that you don't run over a big one. You know, you run over a ten footer and you have totaled your car. That is just crazy. When I and actually, this came to us from one of our loyal uh, e- inside EMS listeners to say, "What the heck's going on down there in uh, Louisiana? They're running over these alligators, but." I mean, what a great way to make a purse, right? I mean, a pair of boots or something. I mean, tell, you tell me that people aren't hitting these roadkills, these alligators, and they're taking them home for some type of, uh, uh, you know, for supper that evening, man. I mean, yeah, alligator meat is, is pretty good. Uh, it doesn't freeze well. I can tell you that. If you if you don't cut it with the grain and, and you cut it the wrong way, uh, it turns into rubber. Uh, fresh, it's great, but um, it's great diet food if you've frozen it because when you defrost it and cook it, you will expend more calories chewing it than you will get from the from the meat. <laughs> so uh, it's great workout food, man. It's like a, chewing a piece of rubber. We have Kelly Grayson, the Ted Nugent of EMS, and uh, we'll add the Paul Prudhomme of uh, of uh, alligator preparation. But Kelly, uh, I, I think that's going to put the wraps on the show. Yeah, so let's do this, guys. Once again, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. And if you have something to add to our program, please share with us your thoughts, concerns, comments, questions at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Sevalero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.